This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSE published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, I just want to thank you for uh, scheduling this this a little bit early today because it, of course, is Taco Tuesday, uh, which, of course, you know is, yeah, that's that's my thing. Oh, I did not know that you're a big taco guy. Particularly on Tuesday, it's the alliterative nature of it. That's copyrighted. Did you know that? I saw a business that was running a Taco Tuesday promotion. And Interesting. they got sued and had to quit using it. Ha! Huh. I also eat tacos on Thursday, but that's neither here nor there. I just really enjoy tacos. And what I like about tacos, so, you know, you typically think of tacos as Mexican cuisine, right? Yeah, I mean, I think of it as Tex-Mex, which right, I, I often yeah. think is far more of like an American creation in some ways. But I actually feel like I should know way more about the history of regional foods. I, I don't have a good culinary history, is to, to be short. Well, you know what? There's still time, Dan. Yeah, I know. I can still learn. You can still learn. And one of the great things about, you know, I had I had uh, shredded beef tacos, or I'm going to have, I'm going mm-hmm. to have shredded beef tacos. Interestingly, shredded beef not native to Mexico. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like that's not that surprising. I feel like a lot of like what I think of as Tex-Mex, I, I'm always like, I don't know if any of this is native to Mexico. You well, know? some of it is. Uh, so obviously avocados are, are native. Mm-hmm. Tacos are, you know, a lot of times what people typically think of is, is Mexican dinner or Mexican food. It's all, it's from, you know, the Americas. It's also from the, well, the Colombian exchange, because you had these two worlds, you know, collide. And mm-hmm. the cuisine obviously is going to alter when you bring two civilizations together. And so that's actually one of the geeky reasons that I really like Taco Tuesday, because it's this incredible, delicious blend of culture. Okay. Well, now and, I realize that uh, blending of culture with the Colombian exchange is not always, you know. Yeah, it's not exactly a one-way equal blend of culture, um, as much as a taking of culture in many ways. But I, I have to, I'd like to understand that better. I think food and and dance and music and all those like cultural elements that are such an important part of our life really are ways that we can delve into understand ourselves better, our history, other people's histories, and I feel like too often. You know, I know I take it for granted and it doesn't make it into our curriculum in schools because I, I don't think that people want to talk. Maybe they don't want to talk about dance or maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Historians really don't look at the like historical blending of dance culture between, you know, different civilizations. I don't know. I feel like I, in general, in general, historians probably just don't dance enough. And that's part of the problem. And that's one of the things that I think we should change. And I know that isn't the goal of this podcast, but no, not th- at all. I think historians should dance. So this podcast actually has a, while that was interesting, has a purpose that's going to go in way deeper. And what we're going to do today is we're going to bring in a guest who is going to really help us understand 
how culture can kind of influence the way we teach and understand things. And specifically, we're going to talk a little bit about ancient civilizations, Ooh. which is something I've never personally taught about. I'm interested in, but I've never taught it as a social studies teacher. And so we would like to welcome into the podcast to get this on back on course, Ehab Abdu. Hello. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be with you guys. And thanks for this wonderful intro. I love this uh, it brings us right into the <laughs> the topic we'll be going to be talking about today. See, Dan doubted. You doubted, Dan. <laughs> hey, we have we have had guests before rip our intros, but they've always been very productive. <laughs> we always get somewhere with this all. So, Ehab, can you tell us a little bit about your background in education? Yes, absolutely. So, my name is Ehab Abdu. I'm currently. Uh, completing my uh, PhD, my doctoral studies at uh, McGill University in Montreal, Canada. So I'm currently living in Montreal, but I'm originally from Egypt. I've, I've had a career of uh, maybe 15, 20 years of doing different kinds of, uh, of work, uh, not necessarily in formal education per se until recently, doing a lot of uh, developing uh, extracurricular material and, and different uh, curricula with community groups mainly to help Egyptians and people from the larger Middle East region appreciate diversity through education, through uh, learning history and through uh, social studies uh, materials. So basically working with community leaders to help develop better understanding and appreciation of the multi-layered uh, histories and cultures of these uh, societies. That's fascinating. What would that program look like? So basically, we've developed an online course that's uh, six months long, and that's uh, designed to help community leaders in Egypt and in the diaspora, so Egyptian second and third generation Egyptians in North America, for example, helping them go through different modules that help them develop both the knowledge of the material of the, the history, so different eras like ancient Egyptian history, Coptic history, uh, modern and Islamic history, and also the pedagogical tools. How do you go about teaching that history in engaging ways that help uh, young people appreciate the multiple perspectives and uh, to deal with different narratives and uh, stuff like that. So we just ended the first, actually, the pilot phase of that a uh, couple of weeks ago, and it went on for about six months, and it, it involved different uh, lecturers from different disciplines, as well as community leaders from different parts, uh, whether living in Egypt or in different parts of the world. What drew you to this work? Hmm. Uh, I personally uh, have always been fascinated by different societies and how they operate and how do we learn and how do we appreciate diversity in our society. So uh, in another life, I'm a singer-songwriter and uh, we've uh, helped set up an ensemble uh, called Anna Masri. I'm Egyptian, basically, and the logo is I'm Egyptian full stop. Don't classify me beyond that. Don't classify me based on religion, on color, on gender, and so on. So um, through that uh, ensemble and through performing for several years in Egypt, as well as in uh, the U.S. and Canada. I've personally touched uh, a lack of understanding and appreciation amongst us as Egyptians. There is coexistence, there is general respect, but when you uh, dig deeper, it's not really based on a lot of knowledge of the history, of the different exchanges, uh, of the cultural continuity, of the different influences of the different eras and different, uh, different historical figures and so on which leaves out particular parts that are not necessarily included in our history, curricula, or our media, especially those related to some minority narratives that we have, uh, for example, in the Egyptian society. How has the 2011 Egyptian revolution kind of influenced this curriculum and the discussions uh, within the kind of pan-Egyptian communities? Hmm. 
That's an excellent question. And this is a, a big part of my doctoral research, actually. It's trying to look at how the historical consciousness of young Egyptian might have shifted with this, uh, the 2011 uprisings. So the 2011 uprisings or revolution, as many people would call it, many Egyptians would call it, has really, I would say, helped break down a lot of barriers and pull down a lot of veils between people. Egyptians started to see each other when they converged uh, in the Tahrir Square. I would say there are a lot of class differences, gender difference, religious difference, and so on, were overcome, at least for these 18 days, where everybody was so galvanized and so unified towards one key goal of ousting a dictator. For that window of time, there was a big and strong solidarity, which was a very strong, of course, formative moment for a lot of young people, defining of defining basically what they want to do next in the country, how they want to be engaged, how they see themselves as citizens, how they see other people that they might not have been aware of, uh, whether people of ideological backgrounds of or other uh, variations, and how they might work together maybe uh, in the future. This might have shifted a little bit with subsequent uh, events, unfortunately, that have divided the country on, on several uh, lines. But at least, definitely, the 2011, I would say, to answer your questions, was a very important moment of solidarity, of of overcoming some of these uh, differences and, uh, and tensions, maybe. For those that are not super familiar with Egyptian history, what parts of the history do you think are really critical for people to understand in Egypt? Yeah. I think as the, the history of the country is very long, this could be a very long uh, response, but I'll keep it <laughs> a bit short. I'm just thinking about how if someone asked me that question about the United States, there's like no way I could answer it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And imagine uh, a country like Egypt as, the, yeah, like people talk about like being the oldest nation state on like 7,000 years of documented history or whatever. In the case of Egypt, I would say when you look at the curricula and some of the the research that I've, I've been doing that I'm actually now in the process of, of analyzing, there's a, a lot of focus on the country's ancient history, which is very important, the ancient Egyptian civilization that, that is, I would say, the most well-known in the West and so on. And then you have some formative transitory or transitional uh, periods. I would say that, for example, the Greco-Roman and what some people call the Coptic era, when Egypt was predominantly Christian as well for about 600, 700 years before the uh, Arab Muslim conquest is also very important. And then you have the Arab Muslim conquest, of course, which was very uh, important back in uh, the year 640 CE. And then modern Egyptian history, of course, with coming with uh, the 1952 revolution or coup d'etat by Nasser that basically formed a military-backed regime that's continuing, according to a lot of scholars, up till now. From the 1952 coup d'etat up till um, today, basically, uh, you're having uh, a series of presidents backed by the military or coming from the military establishment. So I teach modern history, modern world history, and we really don't touch on Egypt that much, which is, it feels like that for something that gets such play in the ancient world history, it gets such play with the pyramids, it feels like it kind of falls off the face of, well, the historical textbook narrative. Yeah, yeah. This is pretty interesting. I was just reading a study that was done with some British uh, students who had just finished a visit to the British Museum. And part of that was visiting the ancient Egyptian collection. They have basically internalized this disconnect. They were talking about modern Egypt as being very different from ancient Egypt and not seeing any kind of cultural continuity between the two, for example. And unfortunately, I would say a lot of Egyptians have also internalized that divide. 
And I think in, in academia and when you look at different departments, especially when, with countries with long histories such as Egypt, not, of course it's not long, but you have departments dedicated to Egyptology, departments dedicated even to Coptology. Uh, now the study of Coptic Egypt, the 600, 700 years, you have now departments in different universities and schools focusing on that. And then you have Islamic history, the, totally divided. And that's part of what I'm calling for a little bit in some of what I'm, I'm writing, including talking about the Quebec, for example, textbooks, and how we need to bridge these gaps so that we can help students appreciate cultural continuities, and uh, whether within particular societies or across different uh, civilizations and uh, cultures. Ehab, so we would like to also congratulate you as part of this because you were recently published in Theory and Research and Social Education, so congratulations. Ooh, thank you. And, <laughs> and your article was titled, Toward Embracing Multiple Perspectives in World History Curricula, Interrogating Representations of Intercultural Exchanges Between Ancient Civilizations in Quebec Textbooks. It sounds like just a fascinating topic because so often getting stories that represent cultures properly and tell their histories properly is a challenge. Uh, we've been taught, we've talked about a lot in the U.S. Can you tell us what your study specifically delved into? Absolutely. Thank you very much. And thanks again for, uh, for having me. It's a pleasure to, to be here and talk about that. So just a, a brief uh, background, how this came about. I was uh, co-teaching a course uh, at McGill University as part of the teacher education program for basically preparing social studies uh, pre-service teachers who will then become uh, history and social studies teachers in uh, different Quebec high schools. And uh, that's where I started getting more fascinated by how uh, and how we're preparing them to teach history. And I, I felt that we were focusing a lot on modern history and there was no guidance whatsoever on how you would deal with teaching ancient civilizations in your classroom. Neither did the teacher guides talk about that, nor did uh, some of the key guides that are used across Canadian education, teacher education programs, such as the big six uh, historical thinking uh, dimensions, for example. They are mainly focused on modern history, providing very excellent examples from that. But talking about ancient history uh, and ancient civilization and how to teach them is left basically to the teacher's interest or their own efforts. So I thought to look at these textbooks and to look also at the teacher guides and how uh, we can better prepare our pre-service teachers when they come to teach ancient civilizations, basically. So that's how it, uh, it came about. And I can tell you a little bit about what came out of it. We obviously do. We're so excited to hear about your, your radioactive spider bite. You saw the need and then you jumped to it. What did you find in the study? What was in these textbooks and what do we got to get changed? Yes. So what I found in these textbooks, I, th I think they were excellent in a lot of ways. I mean, the, uh, from the how they were designed to the print, the quality, the you could see there's a lot of effort, uh, of course, into that. Of course, there's always room for improvement. Some of the key areas that I found would be important, especially that a place like Quebec and across North America, we have increasingly multicultural classrooms that include people who are hailing from different parts of the world. And I thought uh, the teaching of ancient uh, civilizations, especially that it's most of the time is one of the first uh, things that students would encounter in history class classrooms. So it sets the tone in a lot of ways. I found that uh, if we are to help 
students coming from different backgrounds or feeling that uh, affinity to non-Western civilizations, that these textbooks might maybe put them at a disadvantage in a way. They not totally exclude them, but there are ways, both explicitly and implicitly, where West, Western civilizations, mostly I would say the Greco-Roman uh, civilizations, are developed and constructed as more superior in a way. That was clear, for example, in different ways of how intercultural exchanges were portrayed. Uh, for example, there was very little mention of of the continuing influence of some of the non-Western ancient civilizations' influences, as opposed to a lot of emphasis on how Greek and Roman influences continue until today, on architecture, on uh, literature, on philosophy, and so on. There was very little also on the influence of ancient uh, Near Eastern civilizations on the Greco-Roman civilization, for instance, so that a lot of Afrocentrists, for example, have written about, as I touched upon in the article. There was also very little, as several Near Eastern and Egyptologists, for example, would argue, uh, there was very little acknowledgement of the influence also of, of ancient Near Eastern or non-Western civilizations in general on the Judeo-Christian, and I would add Islamic, so the, basically the Abrahamic monotheistic uh, tradition. There is very little acknowledgement also of non-material or spiritual influences for, that came from these Near Eastern uh, ancient civilizations, whether Mesopotamia, whether ancient Egyptian, and so on. And my argument is that it is important to acknowledge these, not only to provide a more balanced narrative, but also more from a historical consciousness perspective, how to help students uh, also develop more appreciation and respect for non-Western civilizations and people maybe who identify with these uh, parts of the world or these cultures and, and societies. That's interesting. A lot of times you hear like the phrase or you hear the phrase Greco-Roman, you know, the Greco-Roman roots. But yeah, that's totally negating the fact that, you know, there's these Near East nations that are or Near East civilizations that are actually impacting that. So to say that it's Greco-Roman roots is really kind of doing a disservice to all the other roots that's also a part of that Greco-Roman tradition. Yeah, yeah. And exactly, and that's uh, some of the arguments uh, that might have been controversial a little bit, but books like Black Athena, for example, and others that are trying to put exactly your uh, argument, Michael, at the forefront, saying that basically we need to acknowledge these exchanges, that these great civilizations, the Greco-Roman or the Greek and the Roman, have contributed a lot, but they did not just uh, come out of the blues. They were also a continuation of, of other efforts by other uh, civilizations as far uh, as China and as maybe closer as other Afro-Asiatic civilizations, including the Near Eastern civilizations and so on. If you don't understand the contributions of different civilizations, it's hard to understand today the, what those civilizations offer in some ways. There's so, so much the past is a reflection of the, of the way we look and understand the present. And I remember even just, I think it was last summer, that an Iowa senator who will go unnamed, literally asked that question on a political panel that what other you know, contributions have non-Western civilizations even made to the world? And he clearly believed it. He believed that there were no contributions. And that's the result of you know, years of Eurocentric textbooks, probably, but also just somebody who has no interest in learning anything about other places. So how do we make sure that textbooks get it right? Or can textbooks just never get it right? Because they've been bad for a long time. 
It's a it's a great point, and I would just to uh, your excellent point about the Iowa senator. I think it's, it's a human phenomenon. I mean, some of the work I'm doing on, on Egyptian textbooks, for example, is as ethnocentric that Egypt has always been the center of the world. That ancient Egypt is the most important civilization. That you know, and very little about Greek and Roman, or, and very little about their borrowing from ancient Mesopotamia, for example, which preceded. So it's, uh, I think it seems to be part of a, of a global phenomenon, you know, of us versus them, you know, and trying to build your supremacy vis-a-vis um, uh, others, which uh, some of the research has, has started, like in Quebec, for example, uh, and in many other parts of the world, has students internalize uh, into their as Wurst calls it, the schematic narrative template, or the basically the idea of us versus them. It starts putting we're the the superior givers, and they are the lenders. The other civilizations are the ones that are borrowing, always borrowing from us, being inspired by us. But we're the instigators. We're the the main inspiration. So I would say to answer your question, sorry for the the long segue, but. I would say, first of all, even if our textbooks might take a long time, as we know, based on a lot of research, textbooks take a lot of time to catch up and to be reformed and changed. I would say let's at least start by preparing our our pre-service teachers and our in-service teachers to deal with uh, with these different narratives, to familiarize themselves with the counter-narratives that are being put forward by other Afrocentrists, by Near Eastern historians or so on, that, who are basically problematizing this dominant narrative that sidelines the influences coming from non-Western civilizations. So basically, helping teachers deal with these uh, narratives and know more about them, how they can bring them into the classroom, how they can maybe feel a bit comfortable by encouraging students to go ahead and do their own research, to engage with these different narratives, for example, and interrogate them and come up with ideally their own understanding of the world, not necessarily that of the textbook, not necessarily that of the counter-narratives, but their own multi-perspectival understanding that maybe appreciates parts of these narratives and makes sense to them as a narrative that will help them, as you said earlier, interact in a more respectful way with people from other groups and, and so on. I would say as important also is to help expose students to and for, to start with our teacher education programs that to then prepare them to be able to deal in their classrooms with not only with the omitted counter narratives, but also alternative chronologies and periodization. Because a lot of times also these are, I would say, uh, a bit harder to uh, to deal with because they are so enshrined in our academic lives, the separate departments that deal with separate parts of history, uh, this deep knowledge that we keep asking of our historians, their narrow uh, sometimes and very focused uh, study of particular parts of particular civilizations that then lose the bigger picture of exchanges. So also bringing some of these alternative chronologies and periodization that some American historians and Canadian historians have started to put forward so that at least our students know that these exist as well. Not only the counter narratives, but also how do we narrate these stories? How do we periodize them? How do we put them in different chronology that might unsettle that dominant narrative in a way? We can't just add things into the curriculum that exists, especially if it's already telling a story that's very much based on a Eurocentric view. We have to reimagine the whole story. What advice do you have for educators looking to teach ancient civilizations in their classroom? How can they help provide that better narrative? 
maybe even if textbooks are not bringing in these narratives and maybe if it'll be a longer process for them to be reformed as we know it's a long process to have textbook revised and uh, and there's a lot of steps and and so on so i would say at least uh, what teachers could do and that's also they can start to uh, to do it on their own but also there's a a big responsibility on uh, teacher education programs I think we also, uh, in, in teacher education programs, need to help prepare our uh, teachers, whether uh, teachers who are currently teaching or pre-service teachers, be more familiar with the different counter-narratives so they would at least be able to engage with those in, in the classroom. I think a lot of teachers would want to bring in these multiple perspectives and so on, but a lot of times you, any of us, I think, would shy away from bringing in a material that you're not very familiar with yeah. That's one thing. So I think part of it is the self-education and maybe also a big part of it would be our teacher education programs providing these tools, these uh, materials and, and so on. So I would say this starting with this and educating ourselves about these different counter narratives. And I would say in addition to, uh, to these counter narratives in uh, finding ways to also expose students to alternative chronologies and periodization, as we were saying earlier as well. So basically, not only the narratives themselves, but but the whole, but questioning the whole construction of how this history is being narrated and how are we? Why does it start there? Why not? Uh, why not here? Uh, why are we fo- zooming in uh, too much on on that and uh, and ignoring some uh, some of these uh, exchanges and so on? And I would say I would end by saying that in multicultural classrooms, the beauty of it is that we can also connect that with. I would say we can start with oral histories of some of the students being asked to do some interviews with their families, with elders, if they are there, and their understanding and their perspective of their ancient civilizations. Because I'm sure this will also bring in some very fascinating perspectives. As we were talking earlier, ethnocentrism has no religion and has no (laughs) identity or culture or nationality. I would say the vast majority of cultures across the world are in a lot of ways, and this is propagated by formal education, are ethnocentric. So it's like historic narcissism. A historic narcissism, exactly. So I think this would be very interesting to uh, ask students to interview maybe their elders or themselves talking about how they believe the ancient civilizations that they have more affinity with or where their families are co- come from and so on. Because this will also be important to to deconstruct some of that uh, ethnocentrism that I would say is not only Eurocentrism, but is reflected in so many other cultures uh, and so on. This will help us also in a lot of ways uh, start to deal with the possibility of some of the students who feel left out in in classrooms and who would revert to other types of radical or extremist, extremist ideologies or understandings of the world that would help give them some sort of uh, pride or belonging. If they feel left out of that dominant narrative, that part of it is the ancient civilizations that is Western and this Eurocentric that's leaving out my, the civilization I identify with, I might as well revert to other narratives that could be as ethnocentric or as uh, supremacist as uh, the one that we... So I would would, uh, imagine that encouraging students to bring in their oral histories and talk about ancient civilization from their own perspective would start to deal with some of these uh, questions and create more of a welcoming and inclusive space for multicultural dialogue uh, in the classroom. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing all your wisdom. Thank you very much, Dan and Michael. It's been a real pleasure. So, Iyab, where can our listeners find you or your work online? 
on academia.edu and researchgate there should be some of my publications and some of the links and i think that's mainly uh, it for now yeah i still don't have a, a website of my own that's perfect we'll make sure to link that in our show notes so everyone can have access to you and your work and again thank you so much for joining us today we definitely hope to continue the conversation online with people and we can talk about ways that we can implement a lot of these ideas in our classrooms and in other spaces Sounds wonderful. Thank you very much, Dan and Michael. Thanks. Thank you. We're all about sharing the learning at the Vision of Education podcast. If you're doing something creative in education or you just want to chat, tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook and other places as well. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to iTunes on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever your podcasting needs may be met. You say subscribe to iTunes on iTunes? <laughs> I like it. I think we should subscribe to iTunes on iTunes. Well, you should. It's good. And leave us a five-star and, review and we can read it on yeah, the air. We will. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off. Okay. That's great. <laughs>